Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, we're going to pick up in verse 31. And then we'll work our way into chapter 30, all the way down through chapter or verse 24. If you're finding your place there in God's Word, first of all, I want to welcome uh, Reach Church DeSoto as they join us via live stream and also Fellowship Olathe. And uh, we're so grateful to have uh, them joining us as well as the venue service. All of us together, uh, campus-wide, we've been working on these shoe boxes with Operation Christmas Child. In the midst of COVID, we set a really big goal, and we weren't sure that we would be able to reach it. We wanted to somehow, someway, collect 3,000 boxes. Well, guess what? We collected 3,940 shoe boxes. You know, Satan thinks he's working in the midst of this. And this is God's way of saying, nah, nah, a boo-boo. <laughs> We're working too. And uh, God is good. God is faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. And uh, so excited for that. There was a little competition between Fellowship Olathe and DeSoto. And I'm not going to say who won. They know, though. Believe me. It's kind of like upward. They say they ain't keeping score. Them kids are keeping score. I guarantee you. Well, we talk about not keeping score at the campuses. Listen, they're keeping score. So you over there at the campuses will have to work that out. Um, so grateful, though, for what God's doing at our campuses. And uh, Pastor Travis over at Fellowship Olathe, I was thinking about this this morning. Both our campus pastors harvested deer this year. Isn't that good? Well, I don't know if y'all like venison, but it's good. Amen. They, it's just useless knowledge I'm giving you this morning. So I don't know why God... Laid that on my heart, but I thought I'd share that with you. It blesses my heart, so I'll tell you about it. But uh, don't forget tonight, <laughs> Kansas City Christmas, uh, 5 p.m. 5 p.m., Kansas City Christmas tonight. It's online. Our IT media team has done a wonderful job of producing this for you to use as, as an evangelistic tool. So this is an opportunity for you to invite somebody to watch with you. Invite them over to your home. You know, you can watch it at home. You can invite them to watch with you online. Um, they're they're going to hear some great music uh, that points us all to Christ. They're going to hear the gospel. And Pastor Brian Richardson uh, Pastor Josh have some devotionals in there that are wonderful. Uh, Pastor Bill's going to make you laugh, um, as always. And, uh, but I'm telling you, we're, aren't we grateful for Pastor Bill and our worship team and orchestra? They do. Even in the midst of all this, done a fabulous job. You'll be blessed by every Sunday night in December. So if you're not able tonight, and, and you can watch tonight and still, I think, see the Chiefs. Isn't that, isn't that good? So it's not going to interrupt your, your chiefs. Yeah, I think they come on at 7. So you got, you're going to be good. You know, you'll be just fine. Well, we come to Genesis 29 and 30. And if you've read ahead, um, you're probably wondering, what in the world are we going to do with this? And uh, that was the same question I was asking about seven days ago. <laughs> what in the world, God, uh, do you have for us in these two chapters? You can call them uh, the baby-making chapters. You can call them baby battles, whatever you want to call it. But it's an odd chapter. Uh, but here's what I have found to be true. All Scripture is God-breathed. Amen. 
All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And Genesis 29 and 30 are no different. Listen, God has used these two chapters to convict me, uh, to draw me closer to himself. I, I, I pray and I trust that God will do the same in your life as we study it uh, this morning. There's some great lessons here. In fact, uh, I wondered, what are we going to do with this? There's more lessons in here than we have time to talk about this morning. Um, but we're going to focus in on And guess what? This, this, these two chapters, they're going to point us to Christmas. They're going to point us to Christ. So God has a lot to say to us. I'm going to pray for us, then we'll work our way through. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, in your house today. In the midst of all these things, we're reminded of something that far too often we've taken for granted. And that's just to, to gather, to be able to, to, to be with other believers and to, to study your word and to sing your praises and God, I pray for those that are worshiping with us online. And God, I pray that you'd bless them this morning. God, we thank you for the technology you've given to us. And God, I pray that those that watch online feel as much a part of us as those who are in this room. So God, in, the, in their home, wherever they might be, God, uh, we know your spirit is there. We pray that you'd, you'd move in their life today. Move in all of our lives. Calm our hearts so that we could hear your voice today. We need you. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, this is your word. Speak to us today. Mold us into the image of Christ. Draw us to yourself, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin here in, in verse 31, we're going to see in Leah's life uh, a lesson that I call uh, a lesson on discontentedness, uh, discontentment. Um, look with me. Let's look at verse 31 through 35. It says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. You'll remember uh, Laban, daddy, has manipulated the circumstances of Jacob's life so that he now has two wives. And uh, this is not a good situation. It never is. But now Jacob, uh, Jacob's got this situation with Rachel and Leah. And Leah is unloved. And in verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love, love me. And verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. She conceived again and, and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. And therefore he was named Levi. Verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. So I don't know about you, but as I look at Leah and I kind of study this deal, I can't help but feel some level of sympathy for Leah. Leah kind of gets caught up in the plotting and the scheming and the manipulation of her father. And, and we don't know how involved she was or she wasn't. But what's obvious is, is that Leah does want a husband. Leah wants to be married and she wants the love of Jacob. But she's got this husband who doesn't love her. And it's really a sad situation. And, and God sees. God sees Leah in her circumstances. And God sees that Jacob doesn't love her. And God is gracious to her. And God opens up her womb so that she has children. And it's, it's very clear that, that Leah is aware that God is graciously working in her life. In fact, with the birth of both Reuben and Simeon, she says, Because the Lord... 
And in, in my translation, that word Lord is in all caps. It probably is in yours as well because it's telling us that that's the personal covenantal name of God. The God who moves and acts on behalf of his children. And so with each child, she recognizes, God, you're being gracious to me. You're working in my life. This is the personal covenantal God of Israel. You're working in my life. But what's also obvious is that the gracious hand of God working in her life is not enough, is it? She's not satisfied. She's not satisfied in knowing that God sees her, that God loves her, that God cares for her. Because the greatest desire of her heart is not the Lord, is it? The greatest desire of her heart, as we see in this passage, is the love of her husband. And with every child that's born, you can just see it in the names that are given to these children. With every child, there's the hope that somehow, now that I have this child, now my husband will love me. And yet on every occasion, she's left unsatisfied and discontent. And here is the very simple and obvious principle. If the greatest desire of your heart is anything other than Christ, you will never know true contentment and peace. Your life will always be characterized by a, by a grasping after blessings. Things that aren't necessarily bad, but things that can never satisfy. On the other hand, though, if Christ is the deepest longing of your heart, you will find contentment regardless of the circumstances. And I don't know about you, but as I was studying this, this is incredibly convicting. Because if I'm honest with you this morning, I think if we're all honest with ourselves... Much of our lives is characterized right here in the life of Leah. That you and I, we've all, if we're in this room this morning, we've all been overwhelmingly blessed. If we've trusted in Christ, we're his children. We're, we're the apple of his eye. He loves us. He provides for us. And, and quite honestly, if God never gave us anything other than Jesus, that alone would be enough to praise him for all eternity. And yet, I don't know about you, but far too often my life is not necessarily characterized by contentment. Far too often we look a lot like Leah, grasping after things that we don't have, that we hope or believe will make us happy, but they never do. And the most amazing part of this narrative is that despite the sinfulness of her response, what does God continue to do? God continues to bless her. God continues to be gracious and merciful until finally the, the, the weight and the pressure of God's grace in her life brings her to a place where she sees, see, finally sees things more clearly. And so in verse 35, with the birth of her final son Judah, what does she say? This time I'll praise the Lord. Child one, wrong response. Child two, wrong response. Child three, wrong response. Child number four, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And you see the patience of God. And I don't know about you, but as I was reading this and studying this, I can think back in my life and how God has been patient with me. Thinking that maybe this thing, if I get to that place or I have this, or we get to that stage in life, then we'll be happy. And we get there and it's never enough. And then there's something else and we move on to that. And God is gracious with us. And oftentimes, even as we seek those things, God blesses us. And it's never enough until finally we come to the realization of what? That the only thing that truly satisfies is Jesus. What a powerful picture of God's patience towards Leah. And, and, and right here 
it appears that Leah has discovered really the secret of the Christian life. That true contentment can only be found in the Lord. It's what Paul said to, to the Philippians when he wrote to them and said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, both in having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ. And I want to remind you, Paul didn't write that from the Bahamas. <laughs> he wrote that passage from a prison cell. And Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. It's not about where you are. It's about whose you are. That if you are the Lord's and you're his child, that's all you need. But there's also another little warning here, just a side note. What we're going to find out very quickly is this contentedness that that Leah now finds. It is short-lived. And it was a good reminder to me. That our contentment in Christ is something that has to be constantly cultivated and maintained, doesn't it? Because boy, how quickly we will find a place of contentment in Christ. And if we're not careful, we'll slip into another place of thinking there's something else out there, though, that if I had that, then I'd be happy. And we have to constantly maintain, as long as we're here on this earth, there's going to be a struggle between our flesh that always is telling us there's more stuff to gain and the Spirit of God within us telling us to just rest in Him and in His sovereign provision. So we see a lesson on discontentment. Secondly, we see a lesson on discouragement in Rachel. Look at verses 1 through 24 in chapter 30. Well, really, we'll just go down through verse 13. But it says, Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So She gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. And and as I read that, it just just doesn't sound right, does it? When, When we're hoping that God proves us right, that's just not a very good disposition for his children. But she says, now God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. And therefore she named him Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I've, I, I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. So here you got these two ladies. uh, Leah, she doesn't have the love of her husband, but she's got children. And Rachel has the love of her husband, but she's got no children. And they're both jealous of what the other person has. And, and while Rachel is jealous, what, uh, what came to my mind is at the heart of this, though, is not jealousy. At the heart of Rachel is just a place of discouragement. That she is, 
been withheld. She's been denied the blessing of children. And if you've ever dealt with you or somebody in your family, somebody you know dealt with issues of infertility, you would talk about a sorrowful, you talk about a painful situation. And you can only imagine that Rachel has shed a lot of tears. And listen to me, there's some things in life that happen to us that should discourage us. I think sometimes we get a little uh, too worried about, uh, you just hear depression, and yes, it is a serious issue, but listen, there's some things in this world that should discourage us and probably depress us, at least to some extent. Listen, if, if you're not experiencing some discouragement or some level of depression at certain points in your life, you're either living with your head in the sand or you're living simply for yourself. I mean, anyone who lives in this world with this sinful, painful world that impinges upon our lives, if we look at it with the realism of Jesus, who, by the way, Jesus experienced some discouragement and some disappointment, and Jesus shed a lot of tears. And if Christ shed some tears and experienced some discouragement, then should we expect no less? And I say all that just to let you know today that it's not a sinful thing in and of itself, to experience discouragement or even to some extent some level of depression. That's not sinful. But we have to be careful when our discouragement leads us to a place of bitterness, anger, and resentment towards God. And that's where Rachel went wrong. It was completely appropriate for Rachel to be discouraged. But where she went wrong is when that discouragement, instead of leading her to trust in God, led her towards a place of resentment. And now she's angry. And you can see her anger just come forth from her, and it's directed towards who? Oftentimes, husbands or wives, who do we direct our anger at? Well, she blows up on Jacob. And she says to Jacob right there in verse 1, give me children or else I die. And we've probably all been there at some point or another where we're discouraged, we're frustrated with life. And if you catch us at the wrong moment and you poke us in the wrong way, we can blow up on people, often people that we love. Often people that aren't even to blame for the situation. It's just a whole lot easier to yell at them than it is God. You ever been there? Because the reality is, who is Rachel really mad at? She's mad at God. And think about Jacob in this situation. I mean, you can see the anger in Jacob. Because he's not to blame. But his wife's mad at him. And it says he's angry. And he says to her, it's not my fault. He says, am I in the place of God? And Jacob is using some really good theology, but he's using it with a bad attitude. See, there's a difference between good theology and being truly spiritual. In fact, in seminary, you write these papers filled with good theology, and it sounds all good and well until you get into the reality of ministry and some of that good theology in certain circumstances doesn't need to be said. And so Jacob's got some good theology, but he also has a bad attitude and anger and resentment is welling up in his heart as well. So Rachel's not responding really well, but neither is Jacob. 
And it, and it appears that both of them are mad at God. And instead of Jacob saying to Rachel, honey, we, we, we need to cry out to the Lord to fulfill his promises. Instead of Jacob going to Rachel and saying, God has made us promises. And God has always been faithful. Let's just trust in God. Instead of Jacob doing that, you only hear silence. I mean, in this chapter, nobody's trust in God. They're all just wrapped up in their own manipulation, deceit, and self-ingenuity. And to me, that's where Jacob really fails. And men, this is so critical for us. In those moments of despair in our families, when God withholds his blessings, or, or the circumstances of life just seem contrary to the promises of God, that is, men, when it's most critical that we lead our families to trust in God and his word, to tell our families that the circumstances aren't where we like them to be, and it's not going how we'd like it to go, but we will trust in God that he is good and his purposes are good as well. You know, it's, it's interesting that all the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all dependent upon what? All the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're dependent upon their ability to have kids because through their children, they'd become a great nation and, and through that family would come the Messiah, the Christ, who would become a blessing to the entire world. All the promises are built upon their ability to have kids and yet what do you see with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? All three of them, at least initially, what happens? They're unable to have kids. And what is God doing? You know what I think God is doing? He's taking all of these individuals. If you look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are all, even their wives, they're all successful people. These are, it's obvious, they're smart people, they're creative people, they're, they're pull themselves up by their bootstraps kind of people. And what does God do? He puts them in a position where all their ingenuity and all their smarts and all their creativity won't get them where they want to go. And God puts them in a position where you're going to have to trust me. You see, making a baby, that's no problem for God. Getting his people to trust him, that's a challenge. And so God says, you, you think you're real smart and creative. Well, let's try this. And you know what I found? He does it with Abraham and Sarah. He does it with Isaac and Rebekah. He does it with Jacob and, Isha, uh, uh, Jacob and Rachel. And he'll do it with you too. He's going to put us in positions because what God is trying to do, he's trying to get us to trust him. And so here he is putting these individuals in positions where they have to trust him. And what are they going to do? They're not going to trust him. Rachel and Jacob, just like grandpa and grandma, just like Abraham and Sarah, we're going to bring in the handmaid. We're going to bring in Bilhah. And guess what happens? A lot of trouble. Now you got a house divided. Just like with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, you got a house living in conflict and competition. Rachel says, I'm going to win. Here's Bilhah. And she gets two kids. And Leah says, I'll see you two and I'll raise you two more. And now Leah's up five to two. And it's just one big competition. It's sad. It's all conflict. It's out and doing each other. In fact, the names of the babies, none of them express gratitude towards God. Every child just expresses victory over their sister. 
And as the children increase, so does the antagonism. What a mess. You know, the, the, the saying that kept coming to my mind as I would study this is, what a tangled web we weave when we practice to deceive. Well, just when you think it can't get worse, <laughs> it does. Look with me. Verse 14. Let's pick up there. Now, in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is a small matter for you to take my husband, and would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift, and now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. And then God remembered Rachel and gave heed to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. And I call this third section a lesson in disaster. I didn't even know what else to call it. <laughs> but you see here, Re Reuben, Reuben's a young child, uh, but he's the oldest, and he's out in the field tending the wheat. And he finds some mandrakes, and he brings them to his mother. Mandrakes it just was essentially a weed, but it was known to have some form of fertility power. It's superstition is what it is. And Rachel, she sees the mandrakes that, that Reuben has brought in, and I think she asks somewhat innocently, can I have some of those mandrakes? And folks, it is ridiculous. You have two women here. These are the matriarchs. I mean, these, these, these two women... They're trusting more in plants than the provision of God. And Leah's response, you took my man and now you want my mandrakes. And Rachel says, fine, you can, you can have Jacob tonight. And folks, this is grotesque. It's embarrassing to read, much less to preach. I mean, you, you want to talk about awkward. We've been reading through the Bible as a family with our boys. Yeah, this will make interesting dinner conversation right here. But think about it from Jacob's perspective. Jacob returns home that evening. Leah meets him at the door, and she says, you're with me tonight. And Jacob says, why am I with you tonight? Because your wife, Rachel, sold you for a basket of mandrakes. I mean, let's just call it what it is. She's, Rachel's has prostituted her husband for a basket of mandrakes. I mean, and guess what God is doing? You know what God is doing? Jacob is reaping what he has sown. God is, is leading him right back down the sinful path that he traveled. You remember, what did he do with Esau? Jacob deceived his brother Esau into selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. And look at this boy now. Look at what God's doing to him. His own wife has sold him for a basket of mandrakes. 
<laughs> and you thought your family was messed up. And this, yet despite all the sinfulness of their situation, their dis- decisions, what is, lo- what is God doing? What does God do? He continues to bless them. It just makes you scratch your head. Leah gives Jacob two more children, Issachar and Zebulun, and then God remembered Rachel and gives her a son named Joseph. And God is, she, she asked for another son, God's going to give her another son. We're going to see that, a son named Benjamin. So what, a, what, what principles, though, as we, as we close, what are the principles? Let me just give you three. Number one, this is the family of Jesus. This is the family of Jesus. Now, primarily, this is, this is the origin of the great nation of Israel. But on a grander scale, this is the family of Jesus. And God doesn't hide it, does he? God wants us. He's completely upfront with us about the lineage of Christ. I don't know about you, but if this were my family tree, I wouldn't want anybody to know about it. I'd do everything I could to hide it. But what's amazing to me is that God makes sure that we know all about the blemishes of Christ's lineage. In fact, when you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, in the lineage of Christ, these names are mentioned right there in the line of Christ. Jacob and Leah have a son named Judah. By the way, who's the most famous descendant of the line of Judah? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. But, but Judah has a son that goes and lives amongst the Canaanites. And he takes a wife named Tamar. And that son that married Tamar, he dies. And Judah's obligated to give her one of his other sons. So he gives her another son, and that son dies. And now Judah's a little reluctant to give her another husband because the other boys keep dying. We're not sure we want to do this anymore. So guess what? He says, I'm not giving you another boy. And now Tamar's got no husband, and guess what she does? She imitates a temple prostitute and seduces her daddy, Judah, and they give birth to a boy named Perez who is a direct lineage of Jesus Christ. You go further down that lineage in Matthew chapter 1, guess who's in there? Uh, Rahab. Rahab didn't imitate a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. She was running a brothel in Jericho. And when Jericho's destroyed, she's the only living person, the only one remaining. And it goes on to tell us that she marries Salmon, and her and Salmon have a boy named Boaz, and Boaz marries who? Ruth. Oh, where's Ruth from? Ruth is what? She's a Moabite. Well, where'd the Moabites come from? You remember a lot? Flees Sodom and Gomorrah, runs off into the hills with his two daughters. Two daughters are looking around. There's no other men around. Guess what they do? They get daddy drunk. And they have children. And one of those boys is the father of the Moabites. Oh, and listen, it gets... It gets crazy in there. And you wonder, you, you look at this and listen, you, you wonder why in the world does God do this? Why does he include this? 
You know what I think? I think God wants us to know exactly the mess and the sinfulness of the situation that Jesus entered into so that we could know that there is no situation that God is not able to come into and to redeem and transform for his purposes and for his glory. Does that give you some hope today where you might be living? Because this could be you, maybe not the exact circumstances here, but maybe this situation is you. And just like this family, maybe you see, see yourself trapped in your sin and you see no way out, no way to remove yourself from your sin and your failure. Or maybe you've been caught up in sinful circumstances and you see no way out. Here's what you need to know today. Just like this family, your situation is not beyond God's power to redeem for his glory. And uh, I was reminded in this that... <laughs> God is often the most active when he's the least visible. And some of you are in circumstances today and you're saying, I don't see God anywhere in this. Trust me, he is working. If you will trust him. Boy, I look out over this room today and I see people who could stand up right now and give testimony. That they had things happen in their life, some of which they had to do with, some of which they had nothing to do with that was painful and hurtful. And they didn't see God in it, but now looking back, they see God's hand all over it, working in accordance with his perfect purposes. God says, I want you to know I can do this in this family. I can do it in yours too. Secondly, you need to know this. God sees you in your crisis. God saw Rachel and Leah in this beautiful. He saw them in their situation. He saw them in all their sin. And God was gracious and he was merciful. Maybe not in the way that they wanted him to or in the timing that he wanted him to. But God was at work. God was making them into who he wanted them to be. And I want to remind you of something that I think you already know. But God's primary purpose in your life is not to make you happy. Now, don't mishear me because God does want you to be happy. He wants to give you the desires of your heart, but God's primary purpose in your life is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. And God, in, in all the mess of their sin, guess what God was doing? He was working according to his perfect purposes. God had a purpose in their pain. Their pain was part of his plan. And I don't know where you're at today, but maybe things aren't working out the way you would like. Trust in God. You know, it was the scripture say, be still and know that I'm God. Some of you, you're in bad situations, and guess what you're automatically trying to do? Just like Jacob and Rachel and Lee, you're trying to manipulate the circumstances. It's not going the way you want, so I, I'm going to fix it for God. That's what you think. <laughs> I'm going to help God out because he don't really know. It's not working out the way it's supposed to work out. So I'm going to jump in here. And the more you work and the more you maneuver and the more you manipulate, the only worse the situation becomes. Do you know, I, I have something written in my Bible. I love to look at it. But it says, when I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. My flesh knows nothing 
but failure. God's spirit knows nothing but success. Stop maneuvering and trust God. Thirdly, only in the Lord do we find real contentment. Few stories in scripture demonstrate the faithfulness, the long-suffering, the patience of God like this text. The Lord is blessing them. Despite all their sinfulness, despite all their brokenness and their bad decisions, God's blessing. But it's never enough. And yet the constant refrain of God in this passage, you can almost hear God saying it. God is saying to Rachel and Leah and Jacob, I will be with you. I will restore you. I will untangle this horrible web of sin that you've created. I will be your eternal satisfaction Why won't you turn to me? And some of you today, that is you. That's your story. You're always grasping after blessing. And while the Lord continues to bless, it is never enough. And the question is, when will enough be enough? Listen to me. The answer to that is never until you find Christ. It will never be enough until you find Christ. Because just like Jacob and Rachel and Leah, God has set eternity in your hearts, Ecclesiastes says. There is a deep longing in our hearts and our souls that only Christ could satisfy. If there is anything sure in this world, there is nothing and no one else in all the universe who can give you true joy and eternal peace like Jesus Christ. It's amazing, Rachel and Leah, they are being offered the everlasting God to be with them, to lead them, to bless them, and to use them, and they are squabbling over maids and mandrakes. And it would be laughable if it weren't so relevant. Because for far too many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, Today in our lives, we're far more concerned with mandrakes than we are with our own eternal salvation. And I pray that none of us would be so foolish. Hear me today, no matter where you've been, the Lord sees you. Just like this family, the Lord desires to save you and to redeem you from your sin. Not only to save you and to redeem you from your sin, but to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. But you must turn from your sin and you must trust him. You can't cling to your sin and know his salvation and his satisfaction. You can have Jesus and his salvation or you can have your sin and no destruction. But you can't have them both. I don't know about you, but I think I'd rather have Jesus. And that's the hymn that has been humming in my mind all week as I've studied this text. That I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus or, than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. He's fairer than lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey from out the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus 
let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Do you know him? Is that your heart today? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We read a chapter like this and we just scratch our heads. And we wonder, how how could you be so gracious and so merciful to individuals that seem to neglect you at every turn? And then we think about our own lives. And how far too often (laughs) we look far too much like Leah. Far too much like Rachel. More concerned with mandrakes than we are our own eternal salvation. We neglect you and go about our lives seeking after things that would never satisfy (laughs) and somehow God you're always gracious and God I I pray if that characterizes the, the life of somebody that maybe is watching today online or in this room or at Fellowship Olathe or in DeSoto today and they've never trusted in you I pray today your, your overwhelming graciousness, your overwhelming kindness, your overwhelming mercy, your overwhelming love that was demonstrated in Christ's death on the cross would break them today. It would so overwhelm them that they couldn't help but turn away from their sin and trust in you. That they would run out of themselves today and they would run to you. They would know your salvation. They would know your forgiveness. And God, they would finally know that in you and in you alone do we find true and eternal contentment. God, some of us were here and we know you, but we faded into discontentedness, seeking after things that never satisfy. God, first of all, thank you for being so gracious. And today we want to rest in you. Help us to be still. And say together with Leah, this time we'll just praise you. Today, right now in this room, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we have or we don't have, right now today we just want to say, we have all we need because we have you. We love you, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.